episode two of the Data-Driven Security Podcast. My name is Jay Jacobs. Joining me today is Bob Rudis. Bob, how are Jay, you doing today? Jay, what's up, man? Hey, we uh, this is our this is our well our third podcast episode two. Well, right? yeah, everyone knows that two actually is the third thing, and because you started, everybody starts at zero, right? Right. Yeah. This is our this is our third, except except R. Um, doesn't start at zero. So uh, last podcast. Let's just review for for listeners. So last podcast we had three guests on, and of course the uh, the joke was that we've now exhausted the uh, the talent pool of uh, data data people within information security. Yeah, so I guess this makes this our second, our third, and final podcast. That would right. mean. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. This we must be done. Right, we've we've tapped the talent pool because obviously there aren't groups like Click Security out there with amazingly smart people. And right. all sorts of other folks out there who are doing really good data work and security that we could have on the podcast. And we'll just, yeah. yeah, we'll just have to show them over time, right? Yeah, we're gonna yeah. get some more guests on. We've got uh, a couple of people lined up, I think, coming up. Maybe. Yeah, in- indeed. So. And hopefully, we'll be able to sneak in some stuff during the wonderful RSA event, including Metricon. There's gotta be a lot of spiffy data people there that we can at least do an on-the-scenes report from, just to show yeah. people there. Just to show people there's more than just the five so far. Right. Right. Yeah, definitely. So you you had an event that you went to last Friday that I wanted to see if you would talk about. Yeah. Let me. You did, yeah, let you me... did a blog post. Why I'd hardly call it a blog post. Well, you did a, a micro blog post. Can we say that micro blog? Uh, I I would like to call it a tweet scription, if that's okay with you. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Twitter transcription compiled all together, put up on there. So uh, I brought up on the screen for folks where I was. Uh, the the fine folks at Liberty Mutual who helped co-sponsor this thing, as you can see down here. Weather um, and data storm. Yeah, so we, I was at Harvard. Um, one of uh, Steve Patton on my team, who was one of my data scientists, um, and actually my wife went down too. She's actually building a pre-data science program at one of the local community colleges. So we all kind of trekked down to the frigid Boston. It was wicked, wicked cold. Walking four blocks gave you frostbite. It was terrible. Um, wow. I lost I lost at least three fingers. It, it was terrible. Um, <laughs> And uh, this this was an incredible symposium, and I only wish I knew about um, the past you know however many years they've done this for. It looks like they've done this compute fest for the past four or five years, and uh, they put together just a phenomenal program. Um, I, I you know scrolling through this, you guys can go to the website. We'll have as usual, we'll have links up for everything we talk about. You know, I, I was kind of kind of more excited about the beginning part of it uh, more than the stuff because. Uh, uh, Rachel Shutt and um, Jeff Jeff Her especially um, you know and I and I cannot you know not say something nice about uh, Fernando Perez uh, those three folks uh, I follow just like religiously on Twitter and all the stuff that they do and you'll you'll see why as as you kind of look at them and, and what we post about them the uh, just excited to, t- to talk about you know the whole data science thing which is what Rachel kind of brought up 
the whole IPython thing, which you know, it just coincidentally enough, and because I had actually written the post before I uh, I went to this, the uh, we talked a little bit about um, the the IPython stuff, and you and you and I have been talking about IPython a lot more, and it's in the book. Um, and then you know, Jeff is you know Mr. D three along with uh, Mike Bostock, and um, I think it's Bostock by the way, but the uh, it, it was just a really, really good, just like bam, bam, bam of, of just knowledge transfer, link transfer, awesome demos. Just getting the the whole audience really excited about those things. Kind of got back a little late uh, to to lunch uh, from lunch, but I, I caught just I really caught the Cynthia Rudin's talk right at the beginning. And uh, as I was telling Jay earlier, um, she uh, one of the articles that I linked to off of the the Twitter transcript, and also which we'll put up in in, in the uh, podcast post. Uh, this is a great article um, paper she wrote about uh, something called manhole events, and I, I won't bore people on the podcast talking about it too much more until I dig into it. But I see a lot of potential of taking some of the modeling she did with predictive analysis about when there was going to be a manhole event. And the humorous part about a manhole event is that most manhole events end up being explosions and fire coming from beneath the streets up through manholes. And, uh, you know, trying to predict those so that they don't, you know, so that you can stop them before they're going to happen or know kind of right about when they're going to happen and do some inspection and verification to make sure they actually don't happen. It's a fascinating paper, fascinating subject. Uh, just tons of real practical stuff she covered through, and I've got links to a lot of stuff there as well. And uh, you know, then you know the rest of the folks. We we actually left a little early in the afternoon, so I didn't catch the rest of it. So I, I will definitely get some stuff from the uh, uh, the the folks that stayed. Uh, Steve Patton uh, definitely stayed for that. I kind of stayed down all the way to uh, to the the one one. Uh, what does the data say? And uh, just it's a just fascinating stuff. Well, again, we'll have links to everything. Uh, and um, you know, this, if we need more we, we need fewer RSAs, and we need more symposiums like this, because this is where the collaboration, the sharing, the most, the multidisciplinary approaches, you know, that's where all this stuff is really going to come through. That's exciting. So, what uh, do you have any like uh, little nuggets of wisdom that you walked away with? You know, Jay, actually, one of the things that I thought was <laughs> awesome was was Jeff Herr. Uh, was was asked a couple questions, and in one of the answers, he actually referred to data scientists as bricolures. And you know, I, I'm not sure, and, and, and I know I got all excited, and I like tweeted you right away about that. Right. And I, and, and, and it, I didn't know what a bricolure was, and I'm not sure if you know you probably did, being all like you know nerdy and smart no. and stuff. No. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you're just being kind. Uh, so, so, so I, I, I did what all really smart people do, and you know, went went to Wikipedia to to, to learn everything. And uh, it turns out it's from a, a word called bricolage, which is French for uh, tinkering. And it's pretty kind of neat, right? It describes that you're bringing in multiple stuff from multiple places together to make something, to create something, to do something. And I just found that to be one of the most fascinating things, uh, you know, the, just describing it that way. It's probably one of the most elegant descriptions of, of what a data, data scientist really is and, you know, what data science teams need, need to have together to actually produce something pretty cool. And I think also the emphasis, I think everybody there emphasized the the need for this to be a team approach, right? And that you, there will not be one person that will have every bit of knowledge for every single thing and that you need to bring everything together. It was awesome seeing how there's a bunch of universities and colleges putting together new programs to facilitate the data science stuff. 
and you know just and you know I, I what I will say is you know towards the afternoon they started bringing in some Harvard folks who were really 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 good at math kind of like you are uh, kind of like how I'm I'm really not and um, I mean I, I can do math it's just that like I don't nearly get I, I I don't get nearly as excited at the word you know Bayesian priors as you do Jay I mean <laughs> people only knew they probably just saw you actually get a little excited um, yeah that's yeah. funny. Yeah, it, it it was a good talk. It was I, the guy was super excited about it, um, but you could tell that people weren't expecting to to to. The audience was not made up in t- of of a lot of folks that were deep in math because when he asked, "Oh come on, everybody raise your hands when X," and I won't go into what the X was, like three people raised their hands, and the guy got really like sort of bummed and disappointed because he thought more more smart people were in the audience. Right. It, was just, it was just more idiots like me in the audience. So, sure. um, so you know, and and I think. You know, maybe the other big takeaway from this is you, know, you don't you don't need to be a Google, you don't need to be a Netflix, um, you don't need to be a Dropbox, you don't need to be all those folks there because there was a number of folks talking about using small data. You don't need to have gigantic right. amounts of data to apply data science. You know, Google was there talking about how you do things at Google scale, but even then, Google, you know, the, the folks from Google were like, you know, you need to prove this out first as that that it's actually useful. And then figure out how you're going to do it at scale because it's got to run at scale at Google. But if you can't prove it out first in the small, there's really no point in trying to do the large. Um, and, and I, I, you know, Cynthia Rudin, I think, is also that when she, she, you know, she was just so practical. Three really impressive just snippets of things back to back. That again, we have links for. And you know, she's someone new that I need to follow. You know, she's from MIT, but yet she made things extraordinarily accessible. Um, right. And you know, just simple rules engines she was talking about, and just you know how they've they've already improved the ability to detect strokes just by applying smarter rules and making more use more um, human readable rules in rules engines than they had before. And just some, some it, it was again just really practical, down to earth. You got good takeaways. I think every everybody had from from every single talk there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, that kind of segues into uh, what I'll be speaking about at RSA with Wade Baker. Um, and, and I think the title of the talk is something like learning from small data. You know, we're going to focus on uh, sort of that anti-big data but still data-driven, you know, talking about small data. So when, when you started talking about that, that, that made me think of that. That um, It is something I think that it requires some focus. Um, and, and, and not to ruin your talk by talking about it too much because, you know, you could divulge all the cool info and then no one needs to go to it. In like two uh, minutes. Yeah. yeah. Cover but it all in two minutes. Yeah, is it all um, is it all breach stuff you're talking about, or is there a particular theme? Oh yeah, no. Data? No, so we we're gonna we're going through uh, every publication that we can find, basically, where people try to publish statistics or you know publish uh, things that they've learned from their environment or their customers or whatever it is. These publications, looking at those for use of small data, you know, because I mean most of that, some of that. It gets into large data sets or something like that, but um, you know, how are we at doing the just just working with data? I mean, forget the whole big data problem, which is mainly a technical problem in my mind. I mean, there's some some nuances, but um, really, I mean, how are we working with data? Let's focus on small data first, tackle that, and then maybe we can work up to some big data. Excellent. And you know, I think the one thing I'd just like to mention quickly, just final about the the symposium, it uh, gave me a chance to meet Lane Harrison in person. Uh, Lane is actually uh, featured in one section of the book, uh, Data Driven Security, uh, to shill it one more time, coming up February 17th, Riley Press. Uh, it was great meeting him in person, um, hearing especially about how much he's been doing in the VizSec community and, and the conferences and the vast challenges, kind of that, 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 that surround that whole thing. 
Uh, but it was just great fun, you know, meeting someone that I've you know virtually interacted with, but actually got to see him in person. So just shout out to Lane. All right, should we talk about uh, what some changes on the site or podcasts? Uh, where do you want to go? Uh, you know, it, it's a shame that we you know just have abandoned the blog site and don't really post a whole lot there. Jeez, oh, what you said before we recorded, uh, you told me that we did nine blog posts since our last podcast. Nine, nine blog posts. Some of them very tome-like as well as you have criticized me about, I think. I mean, right. you may not have overtly criticized me, but I read it as Well, criticism. mine too. Mine, mine haven't been short. You, yours have been, yeah, you know, I think, so your first one, um, actually, well, yeah, so your first one, which was actually pretty cool, and the coolness of it was, which, and yeah, so Jay and I have tried to have a schedule of, of stuff. You know, we were planning on trying how we we're going to put stuff on the blog. But then, you know, the serialist exploded in a good way, not not its normal grenade way, um, right. the other week. And, you know, someone asked a question about uh, Jay's, um, Jay and Chris Hayes' really cool OpenPERT Excel library, and we'll get a link out to that in case if folks don't know what that is. And it, it just begat a wonderful series of discussions on the serialist. And Jay apparently got so super excited that he felt the need to not, not only talk about it on the list, but also do a blog post on BetaPERT. Yeah, just to talk about it real briefly here. So the, the beta part is a distribution, and it's a method of uh, collecting expert opinion, basically, um, being able to quantify an opinion uh, on ranges. You know, so like an example is if you try to someone asks you what's the distance between L.A. and New York, you know, from a straight shot, um, you, you whatever you guess, you would be probably completely incorrect and so you do this this PERT method and you see it on the screen here you, you give like a minimum a maximum and then your best guess and then you get this this probability distribution if you will um, that can go through here so like here's a histogram that histogram right there Bob where it says like this is estimating uh, I can't remember between looks like 50 to 500 most likely around 100 um, and so you get this this distribution of uh, uh, random samples here and then you can use this in further calculation so uh, we see a density plot there trying to trying to get the density of that. and this is just a, a random Monte Carlo simulation in there um, and then I play around with the confidence value and this is talking about it within R so the original open pert was in Excel uh, so people could model that in there wait Jay um, I, I thought you can't do real stuff in Excel no 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 you absolutely can We've we've never said that, right? I mean, we I, just I saw all the haters this week accusing us of saying you can't do real stuff in Excel, and I, I got to tell you, I know, folks, I know, Excel is a is a very handy tool. It's a very dangerous it tool, right? Yeah, it, but, yeah. but it's also a great tool. And I think that that line between the the danger is where where it comes out. And actually, just to segue a little bit, there was that post from uh, Facebook going back to Princeton, was it? Yes. Yes. Uh, and they and what was odd is that they had two their first two figures in their blog post were ggplot from R, some really nice pictures, and then the third one was a scatter plot done in Excel, and it just totally caught me off guard. I, and it was doing a, a linear regression, and I didn't understand why they were doing R and ggplot and then go to Excel. But um, that's that's the only thing. So we weren't hating on Excel. It was just that. It didn't. It didn't. I couldn't understand it, so it was just weird. So, right. so just at the bottom of that, um, you know, like everybody in security that went through CISSP, especially, is familiar with the ALE model, right? You take your what is it, annual rate of occurrence times your single loss expectancy, and you get some number that is just completely crap, right? Just completely bogus. And so, using this open pert methodology, we can update that and say. 
what is the distribution of the annual rate of occurrence? What is the distribution of a single loss expectancy for this type of event? And then you can uh, take a look like this is, uh, yeah, ALE is, is plotted here. So you can see that like there's a, a range of output because any given event, like you may have two events that occur exactly the same way but may, due to just random variation in the world, have two completely different outcomes. Uh, or two attacks that start out the same and just from natural fluctuation you get two different attacks that actually end up occurring. So it's very, it's very difficult to model that because of all the complexity and all the variety. So this is just a way to start to capture some of that uncertainty. Um, and so this was OpenPERT and then uh, David Seversky went back and, and created uh, a whole model uh, somewhat, I think, loosely tied to FAIR, it seemed like, and model that in R. And then, Bob, you took it the next step. Yes. I don't know if you want to swap over to your little shiny app. Yes, I, I, I will do that. And, you know, I, I gave Dave uh, a, a bit of a hard time. Um, actually, I think it's David. I think he hates Dave, and I'm really sorry, David. Uh, I, I just do that. It's a thing. The, you know, he had in his GitHub repository where he posted the code and shared it with us, uh, a innocent little comment, and this just shows you how comments totally aren't innocent. You know, you know, he had a, a really you know, interesting preliminary kind of fairish model of of doing this setup, and his comment said, you know, uh, you know, developing a UI for this is left as an exercise for the reader. And you know, Jay and I, it's interesting because I built it, and Jay, you know, we we talked afterwards. I didn't I didn't talk to Jay first, so I I actually went and and, and built something like it. And you know, Jay was thinking the same thing, like this would be great as a shiny app. Um, yep. you know, so Shiny is an R web application framework, if you will. So data-driven security.info is a horrible thing to type. Um, yeah, I, I got sick and tired of typing it, so I, I worked with the Ecuadorians. Great, great, great bunch of people down in Ecuador, by the way. And uh, they they still use VI to to actually update the TLDs, it looks like, uh, from my experiences with them. And uh, so created a new shortcut domain, so DDSEC or DDSEC with a dot before the EC, you can hit that instead of data-driven security.info to get to us from now on, get you all the good stuff. We have a Shiny server um, set up on here as well, so when, as Jay and I create some more R applications, we, we can share that with you. And uh, so I just took Dave's model and wrapped, you know, a not, not too fancy UI around it, but fancy enough uh, so that you actually can get some, you know, interesting output from it. But just to kind of give an example for how to build a Shiny app from some base foundational stuff in R. Um, and this was, this was a lot of fun. And uh, it actually sparked some conversation back in-house uh, at, at my place of work for how we might be able to bring some of this more usable, um, uh, you know, from what we were doing in Excel into into R. So. And and stay on that page for a second because I I hadn't noticed the box plot down below. Uh, yeah, I I added that like probably a day. Like, well, I I changed it around the day after you saw it, Jay. I, okay. I doubt you've gone back to it since you you know since the slave driver that you work for has had you shackled <laughs> to your desk for a week. So. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No, I, I really like that, and and actually the what's interesting about that particular view, uh, if people are watching the video and not listening, um, the the view is has a distribution up on top, a, a density distribution with uh, the histogram behind it, which is a great view. I really like that view. But underneath you have the box plot, and that it helps people understand the density of the distribution and how that relates to the box plot. So you can see the box. The box itself centers at the 25th percentile to the 75th percentile. How long did it take you to whip that out? Uh, so I saw his. I forget what time of night it was that I saw his post. Uh, this iterate. So I did a quick iteration where I basically it was a little bit more stripped down than what folks were seeing before, in about 30 minutes. Um, oh, that's crazy. 
Yeah, well, I mean, fundamentally, it was slapping UI for parameter input on top of what Dave already had at a mo- David, right. boy, boy, he's going to hit me the next time I'm in Seattle. Uh, actually, if, if you only knew how just awesome David is, uh, he would, he'd never probably hit anything, But the uh, which I'm, I'm really thankful for and now, now that I think about it. The, the, uh, so just slapping some UI stuff onto what he had already. And then, you know, as folks at work, I was like, talking to John Forrest primarily, one, one of my risk guys at work, and uh, you know he suggested some tweaks and some additions, and we're we're actually kind of doing some other iterations internally as well with this now to think of how we can actually you know make this be something we can do at work. And I'll probably either you know inappropriately or appropriately share some of those advancements that we make in this over time. Or maybe we should talk about the marks data. Um, actually, I think what I might do before that is just dovetail in one more time the a uh, shout out to IPython and combining two things together. So. I just want to make sure people understand that, well, I, I personally like R a lot, and I, I do do a lot in, in Python as well, too, and Jay, I think you're mostly an R person as well, too, but you, you do other things as well. I've been seeing a lot of things where people think it's a one or the other, or it's a, you know, you either yeah. are, are of, of R or of Python or of SPSS or of SAT, or you know, you're of the particular, you know, data science religion that you might have. And, you know, fundamentally, that's a really bad way of looking at it because, you know, you really need multiple languages to do multiple things. And one of the really cool things, I think, at the the IPython part of the talk with, with Fernando, the, the the IPython has become so, well, I, I would call it somewhat fragmented because you, it does all sorts of things and sometimes it's hard to make stuff work um, the, if, if, it, if you're just starting out. But the, you know, it can it can take Julia, it can take R, it can take Ruby, uh, but it's, it can do it. Um, That's and, the magic yeah. stuff, right? You, yeah. So yeah, it, it, yeah. Basically, what it does is, you know, there's these interfaces to all these other languages that, that that are under the covers, but then they created this thing called magic, which basically lets you just instead of writing icky function calls with and pasting in strings of of other languages text into them and then getting output back, uh, they basically let you inline just use the other languages stuff and you know export variables back or or push variables into and you know it can natively stream in stuff. So I think we're probably going to do a post on how to do some of that stuff over the next couple of weeks and maybe show some stuff on the next podcast with that. Yeah, that's that's pretty exciting stuff. But the uh, the marks data set is another thing that you also just yeah, I, I don't know where you are finding the time to do this stuff, right? But you actually did a, a great post, I'm gonna bring it up as well too, on inspecting internet traffic. And maybe you want to talk a little bit about you know exactly where you got this data from and, and what we were doing. Yeah, so uh, Daniel Blander um, I don't know if folks uh, know the name or not, but he, he was out on the uh, West Coast. He's in the process of uh, leaving the country. Um, he's Yeah, so he's moving. But um, he, he was uh, pretty active, and he's been heads down working, working his butt off, and so he hasn't been uh, as social as he was. But So this is uh, part one up on the screen. So he, he and I had talked about honeypots, and I had done a series of blog posts at, uh, at the Verizon blog site, uh, I don't know, maybe two years ago, looking at honeypot traffic. Uh, and so that got him excited, and so he kicked up uh, several AWS hosts uh, around the world. Uh, I think, what, seven or eight or something like that? And he kicked up seven or eight and just let it record traffic. I mean, that's it. This is like as low interaction honeypot as you could possibly get, right? Just capturing traffic. And so he captured that data for seven months or so, and... Uh, and so he he shared all of the logs with me, and it was basically IP tables. You know, IP tables on Linux, uh, blocking the traffic and logging the, the packets that come in. So we get all sorts of things. We get time, we get um, 
source address, where it's going. We know the location of the AWS instance. So you can see uh, we've got the, the head up on top here. That So, I mean, there's he called them all like Groucho something, and there's uh, another Marx brother in there. So I called the whole set Marx. Yeah, that, um, that, that was just an epic naming convention he had. Right. That was awesome. Yeah. So you can see it's like Oregon, U.S. East, Singapore, Tokyo. Um, there's South America in there. Sydney, Northern California. So he's got hosts all over for seven months. It's just a really rich data set. But I mean, you can see like right here in the summary. So this is, I mean, this is one command in R. We loaded up a CSV. Here's one command. You can see it's, you know, mostly TCP traffic followed by some UDP traffic right in the middle with some ICMP. And you can see the type of the ICMP, mainly it's uh, type 8, which is a ping request. You know, so I mean, you can just, you see this stuff in here, and it's just really, really interesting, I think, to, to look at this, uh, just the summary. So, but the first post kind of goes through and says, what are we looking at, right? What, what does this look like over time? Um, and all of the code is right here. So you could grab the CSV, fire up R, and copy this stuff over. And you see here's like the raw data on these graphics. And if you keep going down, you'll see where we applied uh, a smoothing, uh, moving average across these. Uh, and we took out we took out unique hosts. Um, so we saw a lot of those spikes go down because those spikes were, you know, one host sending 10,000 packets or something. So here it is smoothed, and you can see the trends a little bit easier, see them over time. So, I mean, it's just it's really fun data to just grab and play with and plot and things like that. So, And then the, the second post uh, dives into the actual ports that they're going after. And I think this is where we have some opportunity to keep going. Um, so, I, you know, there's uh, other things out there like SANS D-Shield data, one of the problems that, that I have with that is they just say, we saw X, right? We saw a grand total count of this on this port. And so, I mean, if you see, like I said, 40,000 or something, I mean, you see a number, you have no idea how that, is that a lot, is that a little, is that, you know, bad or good? So it's very difficult. And so what I ended up doing is showing uh, how many hosts per day, how many unique source addresses try a port. Uh, so you can see in this view, 1433, which is Microsoft SQL, uh, leading the pack, followed by 3389, which is RDP, 445, which is Microsoft sharing, SSH, MySQL, 8080, which is typically a proxy port, web, telnet, so on and so forth. So you can see how these are, and now you can start to feel for you. People can picture 40 attempts in a day, right? You can picture what 15 hosts going after a port in a day looks like. Um, and so, like, if, if a developer comes to you and says, hey, I just want to open this port for a day, or I just want to open it for an hour, or something like that, if you're making these firewall rules, right? This type of thing can help. Or if, if you're going to work on a service or anything like that, you know, just, just understanding what this traffic looks like. And so if you keep scrolling down, Bob, the, I think the last graphic is probably the, one of the more interesting ones. So um, I actually kind of cheat a little bit. I broke it out by month. And I did a jitter plot, so it looks like this is just random dots up there, but there's actually they're in the month category, just jittered around, and that jitter is random. So, um, but it's interesting to see the the trend over time. Then, and this is averaged across all sources. So, like in the in the what uh, port 22 SSH, and I think SSH has undergone a lot of change, and that's something that that's why you'd want to collect this data to see change over time. So this element of time is really critical. But this is average, so you can see fluctuating between 5 and 10 hosts per day on port 22. 
Um, and I think now it's like way higher than that. that yeah, something is going on. And I think uh, just so folks, you know, if you scan the blog post, you'll probably see it a little more, but don't don't gloss over it too much. And a number of these faceted plots that Jay's been doing, um, normally faceted plots are oftentimes or the majority of times you're going to keep the common scale on the axes. Right. And in in this particular case, to help you know show each individual one, Jay kind of you know did a free scale on each one. And it's just important that you're looking inside each one of them, not really comparing between them. You can compare the trending between them, but you really can't compare the raw numbers but between them. Right, like if you look at Telnet, you know, it goes from uh, 3 to 9 or so like that. Um, it, to show that on the same scale as the, the Microsoft SQL in the upper right, it would, it would be a flat line across the bottom. And so to see that change over time, see that fluctuation, uh, we did a free scale on that. So. You know, Jay, but between this one and the, the the bottom graph and the the, the previous uh, part of, of your post series you know if you ever want to stop doing data science and and get a uh, a job in the stained glass window industry I, I, I think you have a future there <laughs> thank you thanks um, these are the two parts of the, the data is out there and actually Bob you've been manipulating the data you've been uh, augmenting it so when I started I just did you know here's the source IP address the source port destination port time host it went after um, and we don't have the destination IP address, right? I just put the host names in there. I took that out of the original log data. But then you went in and you said, hey, let's look up the geolocation. And you, you love maps. I, I have to tell you, I think I'm more than just me loves maps, Jay. I, I have a feeling that everybody loves maps. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, one, of things I didn't mention, one of the things I didn't mention in the actual blog post itself, but have, uh, have I think, you know, just become extremely enamored with is a book called How to Lie with Maps. And uh, I, I think that that's a book that I think anyone that wants to even delve into this dark art of cartography uh, should should read before thinking about producing any other map. And, you know, one reason why I felt compelled to write this post, and, and we also talk about maps in the book. We show a lot of detail about maps, actually, of how to work with maps and actually do map comparisons in the book. So, you know, we, we, don't, we don't cover a lot of that in, in the blog posts. And we may later down down the road, but right right now we don't. The uh, you know the the whole idea about mapping is that you really need to make sure that what you're going to do with maps isn't you know the data you want to put on there really belongs on a map. And I'm going to cover some of that in part two. But the first thing was just kind of getting the data in into the part where you could do it in the maps. And you know, by now there there probably isn't an infosec professional alive that doesn't know about MaxMind, um, the geo the the GeoLite databases, or just the actual full on service you can buy from them. Uh, this is just a quick Python script I threw together uh, that takes the Marks data set that, that Jay made available, and we'll talk about the data set's availability in a little bit too, and just goes ahead and does a, a really quick uh, compare uh, you know, a lookup of them in, in the GeoLite database and kind of produces something that I can do lat-long with. And you know, the beautiful thing about lat-long is that lat-long is just XY pairs. So it's just a matter of, um, and yeah, I'm not going to go into the detail too much of the post. You know, so with lat long, you can you can make beautiful graphs like this, right? You, oh. you take those lat long pairs and just shove them on a Google map, like almost everybody else does. And one reason why people do it, in fairness, it's so easy. It is just you know wicked, stupid, simple did to you, paste a bunch of pairs. Did you make those markers intentionally huge? 
So I did what most people do, Jay, and I went to a site, um, and I actually it was the first one that came up on Google. So for me, for my search that I did, and I, I will try to at least make sure I get the URL into the podcast thing for it. Um, I didn't feel like using the API, so I did what most other people do and just shoved it into a site online, and they're the ones that made them that big. But you know, the reality is, is the markers tend to be fairly large, regardless of whether how it, you know, maybe this was a little, maybe, and, and maybe it wasn't the first site. Maybe I actually did find a site that used larger markers just to, to drive a point home. Um, <laughs> game, gamed it up a little bit uh-huh, there, uh-huh. Um, but just maybe a little. But but they're they're big anyway, and they crowd. You know, this tells you like you know if you look at this, and this is similar to uh, some of the zero access stuff that we did about almost right. two years ago now, Jay. Yeah. And you know, uh-huh. in you know for that zero access stuff, it was like the world is pwned. And the reality is, yeah. is the world really isn't pwned. I mean, the world's got a lot wrong with it, but you know, but bots everywhere aren't you know are problematic. But not every single thing is infected. Right. Um, so what I did is I I took that data and you know I'll, I'll let folks kind of explore the post and created sort of an exploration exploration interface uh, using D3 mapping techniques. Uh, and you know, first first basically uh, with a different projection. So uh, if you don't know about map projections, there's lots of links about to read about on map projections in, inside the, the the actual blog post. And you know, using a much saner projection, right? So the Winkle triple projection that you see here is a far better uh, 2D representation of what the planet actually does look like area-wise than anything else. And you know, just just to kind of prove a point, we'll go back to the the, the Mercator, and uh, you know, you can see just how just overtly distorted. I mean, I'm sure Greenland loves the fact that the Mercator projection, you know, is the is pretty much the dominant one that everybody uses because they look a lot more big and prominent and scary than they actually really are. I mean, heck, it's Greenland, right? But the whole reason for for doing that just so people can explore and see different ones, and I, you know, the code's all available. We actually made it a standalone uh, thing that you can get to and to kind of look at the source. So, you know, one thing that if folks are going to start playing with this, definitely encourage you to just the first thing you do is slap in a different projection. The D3 site has lots more you can play with just to get a feel for what things look like. But then, you know, just you know, gave you a chance to explore what happens if you decide to be as, you know, kind of silly as Google and make giant things appear. And, you know, one, one of the neat things about that is, is, you know, on the global map, it really makes it look like the entire world is completely infected, like like some kind of virus. Um, but, you know, when you actually, you know, so it doesn't make sense to maybe make dot sizes that big when you're working on a global scale. But if you zoom in on Europe, which is what the, the, the thing below it does, is, you know, you see that maybe it's a little bit, you know, okay to do that, especially if you're not really sure that that precision of the XY location that you looked up. And uh, I'll play with the dot size as well, too, on your own, just to see that. But this is just to give folks an idea of what it's like to do something, and it's something besides Google Maps. It's something that gives you more freedom to use saner projections. Google will do that, but you got to really code a little bit to do that. This is not so bad in D3. And then, you know, choosing the right dot size, and, you know, just, just to get you started in thinking about doing maps differently, if you really believe that what you've got, the data that you've got, belongs on a map. And that's what Part 2 is going to cover. Is actually that the whole stuff about, you know, is a is a map really the best way for you to be showing the data that you want to show, or are there other ways to actually do that? And so, like, I mean, there'll there'll be some more D three stuff. There are some pretty pretty cool th- stuff you can play with when you see that. Yeah, that that is really fun stuff. I mean, I I would agree that part two is probably more important than part one. Do you actually need a map? But but definitely the, uh, the playing with maps, the projections, and that. Making sense when it's just—it's really fun stuff. Yeah, and you know, really, and the reason why I'm doing part two is that I think one thing that drew Jay and I to the zero access stuff that we did a couple years ago. Maybe I'll throw a link up to it. Is the fact that you know, it felt that the you know, while F Secure was awesome for sharing the data, 
and you know, it was great of them to put it up on a Google map. The reality was is it sort of distorted just how bad everything was, right? It turned out that if you do the actual analyses, the it, it kind of tracked with population, and that makes sense, right? The more you know, more people, more computers in that area, more computers you know are going to get infected, and there's going to be more bots there. So it's really it's it does it you know it, it shows that there's vulnerabilities uh, you know that, that that track the population, but it doesn't show that the whole world is completely destroyed, and right. You know, there might have been better ways to show that data um, than just throwing it onto a map. So, you know, be very careful when you you do work with maps because it really draws people in. Uh, folks are, and you know, the the how to lie with maps talks about that in, in the psychological aspects of it in more detail than I'm going to on the blog posts. But so definitely go out and grab that if if you if if you don't have that. And it, that that sets a stage where people are going to believe inherently that if you throw something on a map, it's got to be real. Their critical thinking part turns off for a second, and they're going to absorb whatever that was. And once you once they see it, it gets it gets part of their psyche, and that's what's going to be the default thing, even if they look at it later and analyze it and try to see if it, if it was true or not. You know, that's you really are going to have that first impression that you're going to put on people. So really be careful when you use a map because you really have command of the, the, the person's brain for that split second that they're looking at it. And if you say the wrong thing or you're providing wrong information, you, you really, you know, are doing a disservice to them and, and probably to you. And I guess the second thing with that is, you know, if you're going to put data up on a map, then provide the data that you have so that other people can put can do the same thing with it if and maybe can. help you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If, if, you, I mean, yeah if you're allowed to. But if you're going to put something in the public eye, yeah, you might since you're already throwing a map above it, you probably can give at least a high-level version of the data behind it. And I think that point is captured in the opening quote uh, that we put in Chapter 5. And it says, even before you understand them, your brain is drawn to maps. Yep. So I think that captures that quite well. We provide the MARCS data set. And I'll, I'll bring it up real quick so folks can actually see it. So we have the Data-Driven Security Data Set Collection. Uh, so right now it's the Marx uh, data set. We have more. We'll be sticking them up there. We'll be adding to it as well too. Uh, you know, as as it says up there, right? So you know, we and I I think, I, th I think I mentioned I think I used the word narcissistic in the book, Jay. I'm not sure if I do that, but we we okay. tend to be most disciplines tend to be narcissistic. Um, you know, there's a the data the data example world is full of flowers and dead bodies, right? So it's got the iris data set and you know British mortality rates and things like that that everyone right. uses in examples and loves to play with. It's not you know, and you can learn from it, but it, it's a lot better if you can actually have security data to work with. So we're going to be putting links to other data up here as we expand upon marks, right? So we've got the the base marks data set, the geocoded one, and we're going to be putting up a we're going to do a lot more with the marks data set with a lot more data. Um, and you, we'll be adding all, all those fields to it as well and giving you more. So if you know of any of the data sets, that would be great to link to, um, or if you have data sets you can share, we'll be glad to host them. So just to kind of reach out to us for all the channels that you know about, and we'll be glad to deal with that. And uh, I think we should change gears a little bit. I think we've been, this is getting kind of long here. Yeah, that? we've already half an hour, and we, we kind of blathered on about our wonderful little blog. And we talk quick, too. I mean, we were, we were cooking there with the tempo. Yeah. So... Um, I wonder if we want to skip the articles for now, and uh, we could do a whole, maybe like half of a podcast later about the articles. Yeah. The uh, I I think yeah, it's just interesting. I mean, the articles out there, it's it's really great to to talk about those. So, maybe, but I don't think we want to go down that hole right now. I think we'd end up talking for an hour. We probably would talk for a whole hour. So, um. All right. Did you want to talk about upcoming posts or uh, upcoming work? 
Um, so I, I think you can look for some some new mapping posts uh, over the course of the next week, week and a half, two weeks. Uh, I, I also think that you're going to start seeing some more IPython notebooks pop up from us, so we can kind of introduce folks uh, out, you know, to you know break the shell of our studio, break through that shell, kind of do more stuff with with that, just so you can see things more interactively. Um, I think that's going to cover a lot of posts over the course of the next few weeks, though. And you know, and Jay, I, I know that you have, you have uh, probably some interesting stuff coming up too. Although you have a lot of uh, a lot of secret work you've got to do. Like you guys are going to that secret bunker over in Yugoslavia to work on, on some cool projects, aren't you? This week, <laughs> I don't know if I'd say Yugoslavia. I don't think we're we're headed there. Oh, I, 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 I wasn't supposed to mention the actual location. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's nice. People are wondering <laughs> what the hell you're talking about. Um, yeah, so I, I do have uh, some other work. So I may I might be a little thin. I really wanted to follow up with more on that Marks data, um, but we'll yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, I, I think we will have. A, I mean, just, so just to wet appetites, you know. So we we've done the the physical mapping of the the, the source uh, the source host that we're kind of plugging away at these poor nine not nine destinations. But we're also going to talk about the the virtual mapping right through what what are called ASNs, and if you don't know what ASNs are, we'll be covering a lot of those things, and uh, maybe even dovetailing in some stuff about you know known uh, malicious content associated with these uh, with, with these source hosts as well too through the Alien Vault data set, and we we talk a lot about Alien Vault in the book, but uh, there's a lot of lot of extra data that we have that we can dovetail, interleave, and use to analyze um, you know this honeypot data. Yeah. So along those lines, I think we ought to put uh, a call out for anybody else in the industry who is doing something like this. You know, either either you have access to some interesting data that you can you can clean up and share, uh, or allow us to clean up and share. Uh, I mean, that's what Daniel did. He had this raw log file and said, "Hey Jay, here." Uh, and so we cleaned it up, made the CSV, and made that available. Um, or, I mean, if you're doing this type of work, reach out to us. You know, I, I met a guy this week, uh, exchanged several emails with him, and he's doing some really interesting work, and we exchanged some ideas and stuff like that. So, Yeah, I mean, we, we would love to help folks either work with data, you know, showcase work that you're doing, you know, I, either that you've made public already or that you want to make public. Uh, you know, just, you know, the, the only way that we're going to get better as an industry is if we collaborate, share, learn from, learn from each other's mistakes, failures, and successes, and, you know, this is a great platform to do that, so. Yeah. Right on. All right, and I think uh, one of these one of these podcasts we're gonna have uh, Wade Baker on, the, the aforementioned uh, slave driver. Yeah, the man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> yeah. So Wade, uh, if people don't know the name Wade Baker, um, he is the I'm gonna I'm gonna call him the Godfather of the DBIR. Oh man, I love that. So not only is is he the lovely and talented Wade Baker, he's the godfather of the DBI. Right. I love that. And that actually has meaning because he he received an award from the CEO or or someone, and he introduced him as the godfather of the DBIR in front of you know all the cameras broadcasting it internally and stuff. And so I made the CEO saying that my ringtone for him. So every time <laughs> I, he calls, I hear. Wade oh, is actually the godfather of the DBIR. So that is awesome. So he's going to be on. We're not going to talk about the DBIR though. We're going to talk, um, hopefully, about some some core concepts in data analysis and statistics. So I, I hope that we can get him on to talk about that because him and I have uh, some some long and uh, sometimes heated discussions about 
how we how we deal with data, the the types of things that are are that we're capable of doing and things like that. So um, it's a really fun discussion. So I hope we can get some of that on the podcast. Yeah, and um, I'm trying to uh, convince Steve Patton, uh, again, one of my, my security data scientists at work. Uh, we, we've actually been doing some uh, interesting stuff with data capture, um, indicators capture, and uh, we, we actually have around, I, he can correct me, I think it's nine months of hourly changes to the Alien Vault um, a reputation database, and if you don't know what they are, just kind of go look them up. There'll be a link for this here, and uh, you know, there, there's stuff that we can actually learn about about the IP, you know, the bad hosts that appear in there, how long, you know, when when they pop up on there, how long they stay on there, how to do analysis based upon that. So I'm trying to get him to actually do a guest post to the Data Driven Security blog, Jay, on on the kind Good. of work that that we're doing with that. And I, just as a shout out to folks as well too, if you have a burning data thing you want to share and you'd like to share it through Data Driven Security. It'll be. It really is as simple as like you know doing Git stuff with us. So if you want to do that, definitely hit us up for that too. Yeah, it's actually really cool. I hope you do a post on that soon. Yes, Jay, Jay has been trying to get me to 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 delve into the the dark art of how to act of all the automation behind data driven security. So I might actually take take uh, a week away from doing the actual data stuff and talk about how we have the site and podcast stuff actually set up. It's probably a, it's worth a couple of posts because it's gonna be one ginormous post if I just talk about it once. So if folks are interested in that, you might want to check back for that because we'll probably do that. And and posting to our site is as simple as a pull request, is it not? Yeah, I mean, if if you can master Markdown, which I mean, and the reality is, is, if you don't want to format anything at all, we'll we'll help tweak some of that stuff. It's a text file and a, a Git um, pull request. That's that's honestly how simple it is to post to our site. So, good. All right, well, I think we can wrap it up here, right? Yeah, I, I think we are done for the day. It was great conversations today, Jay. Um, yeah. Actually, hearing you talk about your blog post was was the the excitement that you have behind the post that you do is actually pretty cool. So, oh, thanks. And it's great, you know, hearing about the maps and stuff like that. And I love that shiny app. So, I think I think we can't talk about shiny enough. And I think what else is interesting is that we have uh, uh, what's the word a potpourri of technologies that we're using here. You know, I like that. I, I think we have to have an Excel post soon. Um, you know, I th I think we might need to have make uh, Alex Pinto do that post, because <laughs> he he he's such a an, an Excel um hater, I guess might be the word, Alex. I'm sorry. Critic. Uh, that um, critic. yeah, critic. Yeah, maybe maybe Excel critic. That you know, it would might be good to have an Excel critic spend some time in Excel and then kind of talk about his experiences and you know, hopefully some enlightenment that he has as a result of delving into that a little more. But if he doesn't, I think we definitely have to. Right. Okay, good. All right, Bob. Well, thank you for uh, for doing this with me today again. Yeah. Um, until the next podcast, Jay. All right. We'll see you. All right. Later, man. Bye.